0: Welcome to this recording of the Activist Lawyer podcast, brought to you from the Granite podcast studio in the heart of Newry City. We are delighted that you could join us at Activist Lawyer, where we will be discussing a range of topical matters engaging not only with lawyers, but people who are committed to highlighting and combating injustices and inequalities. We will bring you our thoughts, but invite you to share yours. We'll be looking for contributors to our blog at activistlawyer.com, as we want your perspective as we unravel and unpack a host of issues. My name is Sarah Henry, and I'm a solicitor practising in Uri City. I worked with a human rights firm in Dublin for many years, and with a number of rights-based organisations and charities. I'm looking forward to meeting some fantastic guests throughout this series. Hello, listeners. We're here with Jessica in our studio today. Hi, everyone. In the Granite podcast studio here in Uri, and happy to be here. We have a fantastic episode for you today. You will hear the recording with Grania Taggart from Amnesty International. And Grania really goes through a lot of her work. We could talk about it all day, but we focused in on some issues that are really, really topical at the moment, both in the media and especially here in Northern Ireland around abortion law. And we hope to have Grania back in again to revisit that because it is something that's progressing quite rapidly I guess at the moment or maybe not we'll see how things develop around that we also discuss violence against women on the back of the recent murder of Sarah Ewart by police in the UK and what's come out of that so quite uh, topical issues there we hope that you enjoy today's podcast and again let us know your thoughts and like and subscribe we'd appreciate it if you could leave us a review as well that would be great Thank you. Enjoy. Enjoy. Grania Taggart is Campaigns Manager in Northern Ireland for Amnesty International UK, where she manages campaigns, including public affairs, media and strategic litigation across a range of issues, including human rights in the UK, women's rights and legacy of the past. Gráinne led Amnesty's intervention in the Hooded Men case, which will reach the UK Supreme Court later this year and is currently working with Michael O'Hare, brother of Magella O'Hare, who is a 12-year-old girl shot dead by a British soldier in the 1970s. She is supporting the family in their campaign for an independent investigation. Gráinne leads Amnesty's campaign for abortion rights in Northern Ireland and played a key role in challenging the law through the courts, working closely with those impacted by the law, such as Sarah Ewart, and Advocating for Change at Westminster, which culminated in the UK Parliament legislating for abortion law reform. The new laws took effect on October 22nd, 2019. Gráinne is a regular media contributor on this and many other human rights issues. Outside of Amnesty, Gráinne is a serving director of both the Integrated Education Fund and Informing Choices NI. So thank you very much, Grania, for joining us today and taking time out of your busy routine. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: OK, so just uh, that's a very impressive repertoire that we've just gone through in terms of your involvement in so many different matters in Northern Ireland and in human rights and your other work uh, that you do as well as that. So but just for our listeners uh, some insight into your journey as the campaigns manager or two campaigns manager with Amnesty International in Northern Ireland would be great.
1: Yeah, Yes I mean, I've been with Amnesty for um, over a decade now 12 years since 2009 and was during that time I've worked on, you know, so many issues ranging from the local to international. Mm-hmm. So issues like the an Arms Trade Treaty, um, human trafficking, violence against women, sex work, um, also then legacy of the past in Northern Ireland and more recently abortion rights. Mm-hmm. I prior to joining Amnesty, um, I worked on issues such as disability rights. So it was the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And that was around the time when we were lobbying the UK government to ratify that treaty. Um, at the time, the UK government were trying to enter 44 reservations to that treaty. And through collective working with other organisations and international um, lobbying focus, we were able to get those down to to four, um, and also then I spent some time in the social economy sector and integrated education. Um, I'm now currently, uh, as you've mentioned, a director of the Integrated Education Fund. But I did also previously work for the Council for Integrated Education, and you know, I suppose for me. Um, I've always been someone who's been very political, um, very interested and engaged in the political process and how that impacts on our on our everyday lives. So, yes. um, for me, there was only ever one sort of clear direction I was going to go in terms of working in a job that offered me that interface to yes. you know affect change in people's everyday lives. And I know that sounds you know a bit cliche to, to say, but you know my view of power of authority was always to, to challenge it, yes. and you know no better organisation obviously than. than working for Amnesty so I mean because I'm conscious that obviously some students you know listen to the the podcast as well I mean my my career route in terms of university was like a degree in politics at Queen's University and then a master's in the University of Ulster um in communication advertising and PR and that sort of brought together if you like um the various disciplines that you know that I use in everyday terms um and I would recommend you know to any students as well as you know the courses that are of relevance that Mm. um Paid internships are definitely a way to go to get some of that practical experience as well. I mean, I gave up um, a paid job to actually take at the time an unpaid internship in public affairs in the private sector because I knew, I knew that I needed um, that experience, so Just, um, I think that is helpful for students to consider.
0: Absolutely, great advice. And also, uh, we've had lawyers on this show, um, on Activist Lawyer on the podcast, who covered various issues, and we've had political commentators as well. But you've been involved in many of those cases that we've spoken about, or at least Amnesty itself has. So, obviously, as we follow the development of judicial reviews, appeals to the High Court, Supreme Court, on a range of matters, including one prominent issue that you just mentioned there about abortion you seem to be very much involved. How do you work along with lawyers? How do you push cases forward and how do you provide support to, I suppose, victims um, and those seeking access to justice?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think um, strategic litigation does have a critical role to play when we're trying to bring about change in our society. I do see it as just one tool, sort of, in your campaign's, you know, repertoire, and it's, you know, unfortunately and increasingly, it is needed because what we have is a government reluctant to move on issues such as abortion that it should have long since addressed. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we consider the abortion rights campaign, you know, just for, uh, for a moment, I mean, I was very happy to play my part in overturning what was a near 160 year old abortion ban. I mean, mm-hmm. the North had one of the strictest laws globally, it had the harshest criminal penalties in Europe and there were very significant barriers to accessing that health care I mean, prosecutions mm-hmm. were a reality we saw the mother who was being hauled through the courts for um, accessing abortion pills for her, her then 15 um, year old daughter mm-hmm. and there was a very obvious and cruel injustice there given that you know, had she been living in another part of the UK, she would have been able to access those services free you know, on the NHS. They were freely available. So Um, It was very much a case of, you know, this wasn't on the agenda when I started this work of the political institutions, you know, in these islands, and we had to force it um, under the agenda. And a key way of doing that was through the courts. It was about challenging the rights abuses that were arising from the law because our politicians for too long had been turning a blind eye and were happy to ignore the cruel reality of living under this abortion ban. So it was working with... um, You know, lawyers firms like Phoenix Law, but also, um, and crucially, with women who were being directly impacted um, by the law. So women like Sarah Yurt, and obviously we we joined the Human Rights Commission case and fought that the whole way up to the Supreme Court. And have to say, you know, in that particular case, it was so vital that the courts had evidence in front of them. Yes, obviously we made the legal arguments around the you know the human rights violations, but also they needed to understand what it's like to be a woman in Northern Ireland needing access to this healthcare and not being able you know, to, to get it. So in, mm-hmm. in Sarah's case obviously um, it's a very well known case but her fetus had been given a, a fatal diagnosis mm-hmm. and we fought the whole way up to the Supreme Court. We brought in the evidence of other women as well including a woman Denise Feeling, who actually her case was interesting because arguably she qualified under our existing law um, for an abortion but because of the climate of fear around our laws that no one would sign her off so um, in Denise's case she ended up delivering um, a decomposed fetus you know and I know that's a bit hard for you know listeners um, to hear and I appreciate that but um, that was what our law meant so um, in parallel it was very much a strategy of we're fighting this through the courts whilst we fight this through our political institutions and ironically when our devolved institutions collapsed it actually offered us then an opportunity because the first thing you know I did was get on a plane to Westminster mm-hmm. and start growing that cross-party constituency of support for change. Okay. And obviously, we know how that went with um, Westminster eventually changing okay. our law. And it was
0: picked up by, I remember, Stella Creasy giving a fantastic um, commentary piece on it. And it's really about drawing attention there. And as you said, you've just referenced two people there. But it's really bringing those real lived experiences to the fore to get people um, speaking about it and understanding the cruelty that was in place in Northern Ireland at the time. Now, we haven't seen full change. We'll get to that in a moment just to bring us up to speed to where we are. But as you said, it was very divisive. Uh, There was a lot of, and still is, political points going around this issue. But Northern Ireland was declared to be in breach of human rights law. Um, I think on two occasions as well, the Supreme Court deemed it incompatible, the laws here incompatible with human rights, despite the fact that one of the cases um, brought, I think it was by the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, Um, there was an issue just around, you know, the type of case that was their standing, exactly.
1: Yeah, so I mean if I can just mention just about the Supreme Court just for a moment because sure. it was really interesting and I think it um certainly for those listening who are interested in human rights law and moving into that area, I mean, it was quite unprecedented the judgment that the Supreme Court gave because what happened was um it was found that the Human Rights Commission didn't have standing to take the case, which we obviously disagreed yeah. with, but basically because they they were saying they weren't a victim themselves but because they had evidence of victims in front of them, they then proceeded to obviously give a judgment and say, you know, but for that standing point, we would have obviously found the Article 8 um, points. It was interesting because Article 3 in terms of torture, you know, yeah. they did, Um, one of the opinions did say that um, some of the evidence in front of them would constitute torture. And I do mm. think that that was Denise that they had in mind when those comments were made. Yeah. So on the day the Supreme Court judgment was handed down, um. You know, Sarah Yurt and I, because obviously it was a joint. Um, you know, we were working jointly with our legal team, which obviously included um, you know Phoenix and Monia Danes was our and um, was our barrister. We walked outside to the waiting media and declared that we had submitted papers to Belfast High Court and that we were bringing the fight right back to Belfast High Court with Sarah then obviously as the victim, as the named person. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that was really crucial because what we wanted to signal was that this isn't over, you know, that we we will continue with us until obviously we get there and thankfully um, by the time Sarah's judgment was handed down, the change had come, you know, at Westminster, but it was very much um, a strategy that required the litigation with with moving the public with us as well. There was a lot of public attitudes, um, you know, that had to be changed. We know Northern Ireland is a pro-choice population, but we had to obviously change and challenge some of the the harmful myths and stereotypes.
0: So, Grania, that being said, where are we now in Northern Ireland? Are we moving forward at all with this?
1: So, where we are now is, you know, having overturned the the abortion ban and also now being the only part of these islands where abortion is decriminalised, so it's treated as a healthcare matter that it is and not Mm -hmm. a criminal justice matter. The health minister refused to commission the services. He brought a paper to the executive um, last year in April around proposals with, um, to do with COVID. You know, around telemedicine, which is effectively um, taking the pills at home, abortion yes. pills at home for medical abortions. And you know, in spectacularly bizarre fashion, he he actually abstained on his own proposals, and they were then blocked by the DUP. So where we now um, are is that we don't have commissioned services, which means. Um, we have, if you like, I sort of term it a postcode lottery for access um, to the services. We have seen some of the early medical abortion services collapse and then obviously be reinstated because our health minister has left it to the health trusts and organisations like Informing Choices NI mm. to try and create some pathways to this health care. But, you know, this is never and should never have actually been an executive matter because it's not like other issues that are deemed to be controversial in inverted commas because yeah. the law is the law. It has already That's changed. So what we actually should have had was the health minister just getting on with commissioning. Sinn Féin are bringing proposals to the executive this week Mm -hmm. um, around the commissioning of services. And on one hand, yes, obviously set and say the executive point of just made that's welcome.
0: So, Grania, if all else fails with our politicians um, and our political parties here in Northern Ireland, what happens next? Where are we going?
1: Um, If that fails, if the DUP continue to block, which is potentially what we expect there, Um, The Northern Ireland office, Westminster has to finish the job that it started here and the Secretary of State has powers that he can exercise to direct the department here to actually then commission the services. So we're engaging and we're pushing obviously for the Northern Ireland office um, to move on this because they can't just wash their hands now and say job done. It isn't. They have to follow this through to the end and either way, um, that's where we will get. If it doesn't get through the executive, then I do think Westminster will finish this by way of um, directing the Commission of services. The Human Rights Commission have obviously also taken a case. Yeah. Um, again, it's welcome, but I think it would be a cry and shame in this instance, uh, you know, if that got to here and if that proceeded and that our politicians, you know, failed us and let us down by not, um, that, by not commissioning the services themselves and taking that initiative.
0: But Grania, does that mean that during this time, women have still been travelling outside of Northern Ireland to seek a Well, or- cold.
1: Yeah, I mean, COVID has obviously complicated everything because obviously women simply can't travel. Um, So what we have seen is that, you know, a lot of women are making use of the early medical abortion service. Um, That only applies up to 10 weeks legally. It should be up to 12 weeks, but that's what can be facilitated in the trusts at the minute. Um, Outside of that, you know, the access varies by trust. So some women are able to access services and a lot aren't, which is why um, we so desperately need that commission. Very, very few are travelling now. Some have had to, um, and some have had to take, for example, the boat, you know, to Liverpool. um, And that's like a two-day round trip, you know, in a pandemic. So what a time... Um, when we know the obvious dangers in terms of, you know, interacting with other people, etc, because of COVID. Uh, There has been, um, we have been forcing women obviously still to travel for healthcare that they're entitled to here at home. But um, my hope is that if our executive um, fail, I hope one obviously that they don't, that they they actually commission the services, but um, if that fails, then the Northern Ireland office has to now act with urgency because we can't have a situation where during a pandemic we're expecting women to travel. Yeah.
0: So you've mentioned there, um, we've touched on litigation, we've mentioned the role of the Northern Ireland office, the executive, and of course Westminster finishing this job. However, you did also touch on public views, I suppose, on, on all of this and public perception. What is that? I mean, I, I worked in in the South um, leading up to the repeal of the 8th campaign and we were very involved in um, roundtable discussions. There were experts, including doctors. There were huge panels of people who would go out and speak to the public, again, trying to shift opinion. I know it's a different setup up there around the constitution and having to actually put a referendum in place. It was the people who voted and were slightly different here in Northern Ireland. But nonetheless, I do see almost every week in Uri where we're based here, protests outside of one of the local healthcare providers with the Mm. images that so many of us have seen they're so offensive and traumatic and um, the signs and people standing there for hours throughout the day how do you change public's perception because I think a lot of the political parties have a stance and even within the parties themselves there's a lot of division but how do we bring the public on board or how do we or does it matter?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was um, definitely a key part of, you know, the campaigning around this. I mean, what we have, I would describe them as like a very vocal anti-choice minority, Mm -hmm. but they are absolutely the minority. And I think, you know, certainly when um, I was doing, you know, started this work, um, you know, all those years ago, I was very mindful that these weren't conversations that were happening in the mainstream, you know, media as well, Mm -hmm. and that that would, would be needed by way of shifting the debate and also putting a spotlight on just what the situation was, because mm-hmm. um, I think for a lot of people, you know, they were just unaware of the very real harm that yeah. was being caused. But I do, now I do want to pay tribute to so many of the grassroots activists, you know, who would take, um, you know, like for Choice, for example, who were taking the stalls in Belfast City Centre, you know, on a Saturday and promoting yeah. um, through other ways, you know, those um, grassroots, you know, conversations, because that absolutely um, played a critical role, you know, yeah. also. And But I think, you know, I um, for me and obviously being the spokesperson for Amnesty on this, you know, we done things like obviously research what the public opinion was, you know, through the opinion polls and it was always coming back that at least Seven and ten yeah. um, supported change here, and that included the decriminalisation of abortion. So when we had these arguments made that oh, Westminster are you know imposing this on us, yeah. um, well, one, devolution never relieved Westminster of the responsibilities to women here anyway, and two, it very clearly wasn't because the public here wanted change. And you're right when you mention about you know repeal the Eighth because that was I mean that was such a, a seismic shift, you know, yes. on the island. You know, it was it was a huge victory for, for women's rights and, you know, for everybody who obviously worked on that campaign. I mean, it has been such a long time, obviously, coming. Um, mm. But that obviously did then highlight the fact that we were then completely isolated, you know, that it the did. North was isolated, as, yeah. you know, on these islands as the only part with an abortion ban. And that obviously did help um, momentum as well. It but did. that, again, was happening in conjunction and at the same time that the legal challenges were being taken, you know, that the public discourse here was happening. It's yeah. so many activists here, pushing you know in the south obviously as well because a win there is a win for women here and there was very much you know that understanding and you know
0: The North is next. Seemed to be the first thing that people turned to. That was the next, um, you yeah. know, the next campaign that everybody had to support. But uh, seismic changes happening uh, through organisations like yourselves, like you, um, obviously the lawyers who are pushing this forward, and of course you mentioned their alliance for choice, and there, there are some others as well who have just been on the ball, Absolutely. and completely proactive throughout this, and deserve great credit, uh, for especially as well dispelling myths. You know that without that type of campaign, um, people are listening to. Dame dangerous information and information that is simply not true. So I think it's um, about spinning all plates <laughs> at the same time. And uh, hopefully we'll get right. there. But as you said, there's no option either. There's one way or another we'll get there because it, the law is the law. So yeah. um, just moving on a little bit from abortion, you've been involved in so many issues. We covered a few of them there in the introduction. Uh, what What's next? <laughs> what, what stands out <clears throat> in the agenda aside from that? As if you don't have your hands <laughs> full already, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I work on, on on other issues, you know, like um, torture. You know, all, all the night, you know, all the light ones, you know. So yep. torture, dealing Explore. with the legacy of the past. Sure. You know, here I'm. I'm very fortunate that I work with. You know, some amazing people who, you know, decades after they've either lost a loved one through the troubles here or experienced, obviously, violations themselves that they're having to fight and again through the courts, um, you know, to have their rights realised, because if we take, like, the legacy of the past, you know, for example... What we've seen is the British government, there were proposals around the Stormont House Agreement. It was the first sort of time that we had a degree of cross-party consensus on the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Julian Smith and Simon Coveney, you know, the New Jacket New Approach Agreement, and that was January. Yeah. And then in March, we saw the British government then renege on that agreement. And they started then push back on the Stormont House Agreement, you know, the mechanisms, which actually was giving us our map, you know, our way forward, yeah. you know, for this, it was it was the combination of truth and justice that, you know, victims obviously have, have been so long overdue and they, uh, regrettably they reneged on that. Again, it was no coincidence that that came at the same time as the um, the overseas bill which was looking at you know effectively giving an amnesty for soldiers um overseas, you know, in those operations. So it was very much a coordinated, concerted effort by by the British government around um, you know, victims not accessing their rights. So that's why so many, including those that I work with, are fighting through the courts. So sure. um there's there's a particular case at the minute, you know, um it's not at the court, you know, yet and we'll have to see, you know, if that's where it has to head. But um, like Michael O'Hare, who's, yeah. you know, sister, Magella O'Hare. She was, you know, 12 years old when she was shot in the back by a British soldier. And, you know, again, all these decades later, still no justice, you know, for that family. I mean, they, they, I think it was 2011, you know, the Ministry of Defence did apologise, you know, yeah. for Magella's killing. But then to do that, to apologise and, and not then follow that yeah. through yes, with, with with justice, it's just... I think obviously the, the apology rings hollow, it you know, does. for for the family and we're supporting Michael Nye in trying to get an independent investigation okay. into, you know, Magella's killing. If we're talking about, you know, activism, you know, families are activists, you know, because yes. victims are activists because they have had to be, because they have been failed by government, because they have been blocked and obstructed by government at every turn trying to get that truth and justice. And... You know, ultimately what our work, all of our work is about, your work, my work is about the accountability of power, you know, of government. And without that activism in every sense of the word, then you know, rights abuses would continue, but you know, yeah. they'd go unplexed, you know, amnesty, you know, as an organisation, we are just a movement of, of ordinary people, you know, who are who are fighting for change and yeah. you know, hopefully through our work giving a, a voice to people who are oppressed.
0: Yeah, it's so important to have that strategy in place because, especially now, given that we, it seems like we're facing an era post-Brexit era where that work is there's an attempt to silence it and an attempt certainly to to silence lawyers and to quell and curb various mechanisms that we would use for example the government has recently talked well they've talked about it for some time now but it's on um, the agenda again about repealing parts of the Human Rights Act pledging uh-huh. to um, update the um, act and administrative law and just I mean their excuses to ensure there's this balance between the rights of individuals. Wills, national security and effective government. So the way they're marketing it, it's all very, very positive. But they keep focusing on, and I suppose lawyers again counteracting that on the mechanism of judicial review, for example, which is just one way, you know, of protecting the rights and, uh, of, as you just said, access to justice as well for individuals against the state. But mm-hmm. there seems to be this effort here to just. Quell that, and there's talk about it. Maybe it's just on a superficial level, um, but that's very worrying, Gwania. I mean, you know, yeah. it's something that you've been supporting through your work. Whether it's not, whether it's supporting a lawyer, the victims' access and justice. Again, you've mentioned the example just there of Michael O'Hare. I mean, without these, it's becoming quite sinister, in my opinion, and quite worrying how do we ensure that this doesn't happen and how do we keep these issues on the agenda and, I mean, pull together to stop this because it's, it's not acceptable. Even the discussion about it is worrying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with everything that you said. I mean, we are working in the human rights act as, you know, one of the other issues, obviously, that I work on in terms of protecting that because it has been so critical in cases like the abortion one and so many others, as we know. But undoubtedly, there is a very hostile political environment that we're operating in at the minute. And we have a government that is unashamedly breaking the law mm-hmm. and, in you know, and in parallel to that, very deliberately demonizing those um, you know, like yourself and ourselves who ensure and work to ensure that it's upheld. I mean, we've yeah. seen obviously from like the Home Office, you know, very dehumanising, you know, language that is that is used, you know, even in, in public communications like tweets, etc., and, and to further policies that obviously have very grave consequences for, well, in that case, refugees and asylum seekers, but um, it's all to deflect from what is a very concerted campaign to erode our rights mm-hmm. to remove safeguards that we have all, Obviously, had you know, what that we all need, that we uh, mm-hmm. to depend on. I mean, this is not a government that likes being held accountable. It doesn't like challenge, and they are very quickly introducing laws and policies that will curb any prospects of this if they mm-hmm. succeed. So, you're right. We we all should be very deeply um, concerned. I mean, if we consider the Human Rights Act at the minute, I mean. That is about that is one of our critical ways of holding the powerful um, to account. Um and, and obviously the fact that there are those attacks on that, it is about government ultimately placing themselves yeah. above the law. You know, if we I mean, this is at the heart of our democracy, exactly. being able to challenge government, yeah. you know, so when we restrict that access to justice, effectively the outworkings of that is the powerful will dodge any sort of accountability. Um, it obviously undermines completely the rule of law. Um, and in a very sort of Northern Ireland-specific, you know, context, if we consider the the, um, the Human Rights Act, you know, any weakening, obviously, of those protections will be in breach of the Good Friday Agreement and obviously will lead to an, underpin, uh, an undermining, sorry, of, um, you know, the successful elements of, of our hard-won exactly. peace process, so although obviously it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I mean, to politicise any of this is just dangerous. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we'll watch as, as matters continue. But I think they do face, face huge opposition to any of those suggestions. Something really that strikes me, um, and it's something that you, I know that your work has touched on as well, not touched on, but been very much involved in. Um, I myself have worked on the issue of tackling um, violence against women and girls previously. But Northern Ireland does not have a strategy to tackle violence against women and girls. We saw the death of Sarah Everard, who was murdered while making her way home. So there's a huge outcry in social media about this. Um, At the time of recording, a police officer had been arrested. And then there was huge criticism against the police for how they handled a peaceful Mm -hmm. vigil following the event. And they made multiple arrests. And that's still ongoing. The investigation into that. So Sarah's death itself, obviously, I mean, they're saying abduction is very unusual. But in fact, violence against women and actually murdering women in this country is not an unusual occurrence. Indeed, far from it, you know, there's been incidents of extreme violence reported every week. I mean, some of the organisations like Women's Aid and other organisations have highlighted the, the statistics around it, which are very shocking. But people have taken back the reclaim the night hashtag, which was used many, many times before. So this issue itself, um, I'm sure you've been following it as well, Gronya, How do we ensure, just based on what we've just said there around the government, how do we ensure that matters like this, like a violence against women strategy, remain on the agenda? And how important yeah. is it for activists and campaigners like yourselves to, to hold them to account to ensure this happens? Because it's really knee deep in discussion now and debate around it, which is something that's fundamental really for the protection of women and girls to feel safe, to even go outside their homes. Yeah.
1: I mean, the the Sarah case, obviously, that you've mentioned and what we have seen, obviously, through COVID is um, a very worrying trend of how protests are are being um, policed. Um, For example, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, obviously, um, closer to home, you know, here, and police ombudsman obviously found that the PSNI did act in an unfair and discriminatory manner, Mm -hmm. that it didn't do anything other than pay mere lip service to human rights, and that. I think it was the personised use of the Serious Crime Act, you know, against what were peaceful protesters, yeah. was entirely um, disproportionate. And it goes back to the point that, you know, we were discussing about, you know, this eroding of our rights, of our freedoms, you know, because mm-hmm. the police obviously failed to uphold people's right to freedom of expression, you know, protest, peaceful assembly, and it discriminated against ultimately anti-racism campaigners. But, you know, I think in the context of, you know, violence against women, I mean, it is another pandemic. You know, it is a, it is an issue that we are slowly getting to grips with, you know, as a society. And there obviously have been some moves through bills, obviously, um, that Naomi Long, for example, has brought um, forward as Justice Minister. Um, but we do have a long way to go. And we are the only part, again, of the UK that doesn't have a violence against women strategy. And that will have to come and it'll have to come in the, uh, and address balance in all its manifestations. Yeah. And also... How we un- what we understand those to be and obviously how they, how they come about. So um, how we keep that on the, the agenda is, you know, we mobilise. What we can't have are situations where women cannot walk the streets and obviously be safe or get home, obviously safe, and that there's a, some immediate outrage, you know, in the aftermath of that and then nothing happens. Nothing you yeah. know, people have to obviously come together, concentrate their efforts, on pushing our politicians to ensure that women here are afforded every protection that they are entitled to, and a strategy will a properly well resourced strategy will be one way that that ad- that's addressed. But it also has to tackle societal attitudes because you know, um, you know, Twitter if you like can be um, it can be a hard place, you know, um, for women as well, like the balance against women online, you know, as well, and how that um, very quickly translates to offline, you know, violence as well, and the response that you see to cases like you know, Sarah, it tells us just how much we have to do um, to challenge, you know, the attitude amongst men because, again, there's no no point in us, you know, sort of speaking to an echo chamber here, you know, uh, and there's no point in us speaking to, you know, like ourselves and preaching to the converted. What we have to do is get into the heart of the conversations where we're actually challenging, and part of that will have to come through the media by way of getting into people's living rooms, you know, how we understand all of these issues. But, I mean, you know... Who of us haven't, you know, sent a friend a text, you know, to say, um, let me know that you get home safe, you know, with, you know, keys between our fingers, you know, we've thought twice about, am I safe walking back to, you know, the car park I flew here, you know, do I need someone to accompany me back to my car? I mean, if that is where we are in 2021, we have a long way to, go. Long way
0: to go. And it's so normal to, to act like that and behave like that. We all do. As even It takes a story like this to really make you think about what's happened to yourself and what I remember even when I lived in Italy years ago tucking my hair up under my hat walking home from work to make it look more boyish walking along the, you know everybody Absolutely. has something that they, they do and it it becomes the norm it's normalized that we we do that but i think you're right and i think if i'm not wrong there is some pressure there on um, the executive here and I think they have responded to say that they will show a commitment um, to continuing this work around a strategy and fantastic organisations like Women's Aid and like Women's Aid absolutely yeah this I I suppose it's so that I mean people like Sarah women like Sarah haven't died in vain that something is done and it's not just lip service so it's putting that pressure Mm. keeping it on and um, I mean this really really highlights the issue so but also
1: I think it is, it is a point about like the urgency, you know, that all of this is dealt with, you know, as well. So, you know, it is great and obviously it's welcome when we see commitments made, you know, by our politicians. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, beyond those commitments, it's, you know, it is an integrity of how quickly can we get the strategy here? You know, what will it look like? Um, will it take proper account, you know, of all the issues and what conversations need to be had publicly and the role of our politicians in that, as well as obviously activists, organisations like Women's Aid and ourselves, you know, to to push that on. So um, I really hope that our executive do deal with this issue um, with the speed that is appropriate.
0: Absolutely. And that it's led by experts and that it's, it's, you know, something that can be relied on as well that it's pushed through and it is treated as a matter of urgency but of course you know we've victims and so many people that can feed into this and um organizations like amnesty and everybody else yeah. involved but again just another example of um a, a matter to really tackle going forward yeah. but yeah so grani thank you so much for coming on today Uh, we really hope to have you back because there's a lot there that we need to revisit I think in the coming months
1: Yeah I've really enjoyed it and thank you very much for the opportunity to come on and talk about some of these issues Not at all it has been our pleasure
0: and thanks again to all of our listeners it's really fantastic to have you join us here at Activist Lawyer make sure you follow us on Twitter Facebook and Instagram for more updates and more events that are coming your way